Good morning slash evening. Welcome to the Calories and Rice podcast, a perfectly passable China Africa podcast. I'm your host, Wenzel Robertson, and I'm, sadly, I will not be joined by Dr. Enkem Jika Kalu today as she is participating in a wedding. Today's episode is brought to you by our sponsor, African Development Jobs. African Development Jobs, a site run by Nino Arduro, seeks to connect development workers with professional development resources and work opportunities in Africa. On a quest to help diversify development, it highlights the voices and issues of Africans and the diaspora in the field. It is also the best site for finding employment in the development field in Africa that I know of. Today we will discuss China's second continent, how a million migrants are building a new empire in Africa by Howard French. This phenomenal Africa-China book, released last month and totally available for purchase, looks at China's engagement with Africa through the prism of Chinese immigration to the continent. We actually have Professor French on the pod today to discuss the book. Howard W. French is Associate Professor at the Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism, where he teaches reporting, writing, and a spring semester each year on contemporary China. I imagine most of you know Professor French from his career with the New York Times, where he spent almost two decades as a foreign correspondent. He was the chief of the newspaper's Shanghai Bureau, and prior he headed bureaus in Japan, Western Central Africa, Central America, and the Caribbean. He also wrote the famous The Next Empire, a 2010 China-Africa article in The Atlantic, in addition, Professor French wrote an Africa book entitled A Continent for the Taking, The Tragedy and Hope of Africa, as well as a China book called Disappearing Shanghai, Photographs and Poems of an Intimate Way of Life. Professor French, welcome to the pod. Thank you. Good to be with you, Winslow. I want to start by asking, what were you trying to do with this book? Who is the audience and why? Um, I, you know, I felt that the conversation about China and Africa had sort of become stuck. It seemed sterile and artificial to me, dominated in the U.S. and elsewhere in the West by two questions. Who is winning most of the time and who's losing? Meaning, uh, is China winning or losing or is the West winning or losing? Or the second question, is China good or bad for Africa? And most of the time I found that the answer to the first question determined the answer to the second question. <laughs> What was most striking to me is how, how often people who make these arguments fail to interrogate a broad range of Africans, or for that matter, Chinese, beyond a selection of what might be called the usual suspects, or sometimes the usual experts. And, and I wanted to do something that broke out of this pattern and travel around the continent with my ear to the ground, using the techniques of journalism to develop something more immediately connected to the realities of the place. So who's, who's the audience? Um, Obviously, anyone who's interested in, China, in the China-Africa topic, um, you know, I would think there would be a strong readership there. But my aim was really to write something that would be engrossing for people who didn't necessarily have a pre-existing interest in China and Africa as a, top, as a discrete topic. People with more general interests, whether in Africa or in China, or people interested just in globalization or in the subject of migration. Well, to, to that effect, I thought it was a really excellent book because you, you, you told these fantastic stories that really gave a glimpse into a lot of everyday people's lives that if they're not already a China-Africa person, which I am, if they're just sort of interested in, in, in Africa as a whole or migration, they would, they would find what you did just fantastic. One of the strengths of your book is that you present the inner lives of many kinds of Chinese in Africa rather than the usual suspects in terms of the, 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 what, we, what we consider the, the Chinese there. 
And rather than present them as brilliant technocrats who live amongst the people, which is when, when people talk about the win-win China-Africa relationship, that's sort of what they're looking at, or clannish mercenaries, which is when you don't like China as much, what you'll accuse them of being, your book looks at these Chinese peoples in very textured and nuanced ways. Could you talk about some of your observations about their lives? Can you talk about the differences between official China and private Chinese citizens in Africa? Sure. Um, my aim was to get close to, to interesting people. I mean, that was sort of pretty much my consistent purpose as I was reporting this book. And I looked for Chinese people in a variety of walks of life. I should say that I also looked for African people in a variety of walks of life, but the question was, was about Chinese people um, and, and in a variety of settings, meaning a bunch of different countries, obviously, but also urban settings, rural settings, industrial settings, agricultural settings, etc. Um, and what I quickly found is that the majority of the Chinese migrants, the people who ultimately became the topic of my book, are, you know, as a professor of journalism, I have a problem with this term, and I can break it down for you what I mean, but I think most people will gather that my sense right away. Um, the majority of these Chinese migrants are what might be called ordinary people. Just parenthetically, I teach my students there's no such thing as an ordinary person. <laughs> However, we're talking about, you know, not professionals or diplomats or officials or executives of, of companies, but you know, for the most part, working class people or maybe socioeconomically speaking, a little bit above. So that's who the majority of these migrants are. Um, and I found that they're living a life that's quite divorced in any immediate sense from, 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 from Chinese officialdom or from the official Chinese project in Africa, if you will. Uh, and my book is really full of their stories. They may be helping facilitate the objectives of the Chinese state, even without realizing it. That, that is to say, that these are not people sent by China in any direct sense as part of some Chinese plan to take over Africa or to, to quote-unquote win in Africa. However, that doesn't mean that they don't ultimately end up serving a variety of purposes that redound to China's benefit or harm. The Chinese officials I deal with, on the other hand, are almost all diplomats. Uh, and for the most part, they're quite wedded to a rather fixed discourse about relations with the continent and about China's ambitions there. These are the people who speak of win-win and who use all of the other cliches and who make stock denials of China's you know, ambitions to become a hegemon or to become a, you know, a, 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 a dominant presence in Africa and who emphasize the fact that China is doing good works and who often uh, offer at the same time backhanded criticisms of, of the West's role in Africa. Not always that backhanded. No. Could you tell us about maybe one character that didn't make it in the book that you wanted to add? Well, so, I mean, when I wrote my first book, A Continent for the Taking, uh, I had a, um, a dispute with my editor at a fairly early stage, and it was my first book, and I didn't really know. I had my, my sensibilities in this area were guided by newspaper journalism and, and you know, in daily newspaper writing, uh, the editor has, as I was to learn, rather more say than a book editor has in terms of the line-by-line -line content of a book. Um, and so we had a diff we had, me and the book editor in, in this first effort had a, had a sort of different way of seeing things and, and the conversation got mildly unpleasant and finally the book editor said, listen, Howard, this is your book, you know, it's your name on it. And 
if this is what you want to say or what you, you know, the argument you want to make or the character you want to develop, then that's your choice. And I thought to myself, wow, what a refreshing thing to hear. Um, this present book is, is very much my book. I mean, the editor didn't shape it in terms of the message or the content very much at all. He was a very good editor. I don't mean to say he, he played no role. He played an important role, but n not very much in either of those two areas. And I can't really complain that uh, because of that process, I had to leave a lot of precious material on the cutting floor. Um, you know, my my choices were, were mostly guided by length considerations. My first draft of the book was, was probably 50% longer than this. And I had, because of the intensity of the reporting effort that I put in, I had many, 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 many more characters, ultimately who I interviewed than who made it into the book. But, but the, you know, I'm, I'm pretty happy with the essential story I told in terms of character selection. I mean, one at a kind of gross level, uh, the very first country I visited was, was Ethiopia. And Ethiopia does not figure in the book at all. I spent, you know, uh, a, a good bit of time in Ethiopia. And just because of word length reasons, for, for the most part, I, I didn't use Ethiopia. There were great characters in Ethiopia. It, it fits several of the sort of organizational or schematic ideas that I had for the book as well. But I, you know, I was up to more or less the contracted book length. And so, you know, I chopped out, chopped out Ethiopia. Well, maybe, maybe in the sequel. I don't think there'll be a sequel to this. Well, I, oh, I would have loved to, to hear your thoughts on Ethiopia. Ethiopia and Rwanda, continental Africa, have some of the most unique relations between the, the respective state and, and broader China-Africa relations. Ethiopia, I've heard, is the second toughest, if not the toughest, government the Chinese have to negotiate with. So I would have loved to, to hear the, the Chinese that ended up down there and their thoughts on the China-Africa relationship. I didn't go to Rwanda, nor did I consider Rwanda. Rwanda is a country that's difficult to work in as a journalist and that I have a, a particularly difficult relationship with. And so mm -hmm. for, for practical reasons, first of all, I didn't go to Rwanda, but I also didn't go to Rwanda because Rwanda is a very small country in the scheme of things that I don't think is very representative of much of the rest of Africa in many ways. Mm. Uh, I've heard that on a number of occasions as well. All right, well, moving on. Another thing that I thoroughly enjoyed about your book is all the different African peoples you featured. This is an African story that actually highlights African agency, especially in regards to African governments, uh, not the, the typical bemoaning of the Chinese do this, the Chinese do that. Almost every African featured will talk about, ultimately, it's government responsibility. Could you talk about the relationship between African governments, their citizens, and the Chinese a little more? Sure. You know, one of the things I was determined to do um, with this book, uh, I said in my answer to your first question that I didn't think that there had been many African voices. There had not been a very broad range of African voices, and in some cases, almost no African voices whatsoever taken into account by a lot of the people who write on this topic. Um, and and often not many Chinese voices, for that matter, outside of the usual suspects. But I was really determined to um, hear Africa and Africans out as best I could in reporting this. And what I found, uh, you know, my own tentative conclusion is that Africa is entering an interesting new phase where relations with China are, are concerned. The governments are finding that citizens, the media, local NGOs, things like that, are asking tougher questions about the costs and benefits of engagement with China. 
in no sense does this mean a rejection of, of involvement with China, but you know, I, I haven't heard any, any Africans of, of any note in any walk of life actually say that China doesn't have its place in their country or on the continent or they don't wish to see their country do business with China or that they you know, wish China was not a presence in their country. Um, however, uh, you know, this new phase, if I'm correct, means that, that citizens uh, are demanding more accountability from their governments about the nature of the way they do business with China. It means a lot more skepticism about uh, these much ballyhooed claims that you raised of, of win, per, you know, persistent claims of win-win or ritual claims. One might even say of win-win, um, and and they mean increasingly strong demands for transparency for their from their governments and for as transparency in specific of 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 uh, the kinds of deals that China is making with their governments. Uh, they want these deals to align with, with uh, genuine, shrewdly calculated uh, national interests. And, and, you know, you didn't ask me my opinion about this, but my own sense is that that is broadly a very good thing. That, you know, to, to the extent that Africans can make their governments more responsive to the needs of people uh, is um, a, a very rough definition of democracy or democratization. And my, my, my own sense of things, um, something that's very much needed and, and will be a benefit to the continent. That is an aspect of the China-Africa relationship maybe a lot of people did not really figure into when, when it was first starting to, to really heat up in the mid-2000s. Actually, that, that's kind of funny. China's engagement leads to a, a stronger democratic process. Let me be clear about what I'm trying to say. I mean, so this, in the first wave of China's embrace, you you sort of point to the mid-2000s. I might go back a little earlier than that, but in, in, in either event, in the first wave of this, this kind of Chinese uh, embrace, if you will, of the continent, it's hard to know what's, what's the right verb. You can say thrust. Some people think that that's um, too aggressive or maybe even sexual, um, uh, whatever. Uh, in the first wave of this big, uh, broad Chinese initi initiative toward Africa, uh, you know, African governments were almost euphoric about the arrival of a big new partner that had a lot of money, that was willing to do really big things, um, and that was leaving, you know, uh, visible signs of change in lots of places. And so African governments rather naively, uh, I, first of all, actually, before I call them naive, I have to say I completely get and uh, sympathize with even this reflex. But, but in the final analysis, the way they responded to this initiative by China was naive. They just sort of rushed forward and em embraced in turn um, and said, sure, whatever, you know, you, 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 you want to do big business with us? You want to do big projects with us? Where do we sign, in effect? I'm simplifying, obviously. Um, uh, and so, um, you know, African citizens of African countries then begin to note a few things. They begin to note cynical ways that African politicians are using these kinds of projects, often with the co collusion uh, uh, or a wink and a nod at, at the very least by the Chinese, um, to the election cycle. So the, my election's coming up. I've been wasting time and wasting the country's money for five years. Let me quickly, a year before the election, begin to throw up some hospitals or bridges or airports or, or whatever. So you very quickly sign some contract work and boom. Maybe not literally a year before the election, but time toward the election cycle, all sorts of things begin to appear uh, on the horizon. And a very bad leader then begins to make the claim 
that, oh, so things have been changing. Look at all the progress. You know, we have these physical manifestations of what are, what are, 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 are likened, likened to, to progress. You know, African peoples in many places have grown uh, skeptical about this sort of thing. And they're skeptical on a, a number of different scores. One, they're skeptical on the lack of the opacity or lack of transparency of these contracts, these kinds of contracts, knowing that there's no trend, there's no open bidding process, knowing that, um, you know, the financing is typically commercial and they might do better in a non-commercial type loan, knowing that the people in power are probably making a lot of money under the table and knowing that or, or not knowing, I should say, whether the priorities that are reflected in these contracts match nicely or, or well at all with what should be the country's priorities, in, in, which means to say that in a situation of limited means, you, don't, you can't build everything that you would like to build, and African countries generally need to build a whole lot of stuff, whether the things that you do decide to build were, were the best possible choices. Um, and so in this second wave of response of popular feeling to, to, toward this Chinese uh, thrust or initiative or, or embrace or what have you, I think that um, NGOs and journalists and, and, and citizens groups and just ordinary people in many, many places in Africa are taking a more skeptical look at this. And that this is a reflection of a deepening of the de democratic process that is not something desired either by Africa's leaders in many cases, and certainly not in any express way by China, but which is a kind of a per perverse result of, uh, of disappointments or, um, uh, you know, a, a sense of um, inadequate uh, return from the first wave of embrace. Excellent clarification. One of the things that I, I want to kind of talk to you a little more about you framed everything. I mean, I mean, your your title implies that there's a, a Chinese empire, and, and your your epilogue of the book has this incredibly detailed explanation and contextualization of modern imperialism, in that it's not simply a process of, of a country snaps its fingers and then sends some people with you know quinine and steamboats and Gatling guns and takes territory, but it's a a long process of of traders and and migrants essentially. And that you, you look at the imperial process in a, in a, in, as a historian, as an uh, African historian, a process I'm much more familiar with than these general talks of, of, of imperialism that, that pervade the discourse now. Could you expand on, on what you mean by, by imperial processes and how China fits in? Because the idea that China is imperial in any way is a big deal. And it's a, it's a subject that, that makes the Chinese government, frankly, freak out whenever you, you hint at it. I guess the first thing I should say is that I can't remember who said this. Maybe it was Orwell. But um, something to the effect that it's a journalist's business to make governments uncomfortable. If you're not making a government uncomfortable with your work as a journalist, then you're not working as a journalist. So the fact that China is uncomfortable with the notion uh, that there may be you know, imperial relationships and formation in Africa to me is, you know, I mean, I didn't do this gratuitously to seek self-satisfaction, but, you know, all in all is probably a good thing. It's an overdue discussion, I believe. Um, I have a line in my epilogue which says something to the effect that no gift can be properly evaluated or understood without grasping 
the motives of the gift giver. Let's sort of uh, take that apart and try to understand better what this means. There's, there's not a whole lot of literal gift giving going on in terms of China's relations with Africa. I've spoken already about the fact that a lot of the financing is commercial. Um, but, but China plays up the role uh, of benefactor, of itself being a benefactor in Africa. And some people who analyze China-Africa ties have been quick to accord China something of this status. Uh, they accept implicitly or explicitly, sometimes even in a cheerleader type function, the idea that you know China is in Africa to do good for Africa, or that China is doing better for Africa than than X, Y, or Z. Um, and and you know I I think you know oftentimes that's a bit silly. And I take a more classically realist what I think of as a realist view of such things. I mean realism in the political science sense. I mean it starts from the premise that China is first and foremost pursuing its own interests in Africa. I think anyone who doesn't begin from that premise really has completely missed the picture. This does not mean that China is better or worse than anybody else. It means that China is a state that's seeking to maximize its own interests. That's what highly organized states tend to try to do. And so I think that's the best lens to, to use when one begins to try to understand what China is doing in Africa or anywhere in the world. Um, and this will be true no matter what China declares. So a country, what, China, what countries declare about themselves is, is obviously not necessarily a good description for, for, for their actual behavior or the nature of their society. Every country in the world of any um, significance comes up with a euphemistic uh, message about itself or concept, self-concept. Uh, and countries that have big global interests are particularly um, concerned with this and come up with particularly highly elaborate ways of trying to euphemize uh, their image uh, and to explain uh, away or to divert one's attention from their true purposes to create an alternative picture that is beneficial to their image and helps uh, advance their, their interests. So, you know, back to the idea of what is what is what is what does realism have to do with this? I, I, I say simply that China's interests in Africa and and, though, and its interests elsewhere in the world are those of an emerging great power. China is in competition with other powers in the world uh, for strength, influence, and wealth, uh, and Africa has become an arena for this competition. And China, uh, there's no reason that I can discern why uh, China would um, uh, should escape. Uh, the normal kinds of uh, considerations or uh, uh, how, why China would not be expected to pursue its interests along many of the same lines that any other great power has tried to pursue its interests, historically speaking. In terms of the word imperialism itself, you know, it's, you said that my explanation in the epilogue is, is uh, I can't remember your exact um, adjective, but you said, um, something about being comp complex or, or lengthy or sophisticated or detailed, I think may have been your word. Um, actually, imperialism is, a, is uh, an incredibly complex subject uh, and is not a subject that can be dispensed with in, uh, in a single book, never mind in an epilogue. But there are nonetheless a couple of things that one can say about it that can, I think, be, that are very helpful and, uh, for a discussion like this in which, which uh, one can say with great clarity. And that is imperialism is predicated 
on a prolonged pattern of unequal relations between, a, between strong and weak parties. Uh, the weak in imperial patterns, in, in imperial situations, typically have few or no alternatives and limited capacity to resist. Secondly, in terms of the mechanics, the, uh, the nature of imperialism is highly fluid. And that's what I was trying to get at in my epilogue, that the operational characteristics of imperialism change with time. They change according to the circumstances and, and according to the needs of the moment, the needs of the power in question at the moment. People who object that China has never had colonies overseas in the classic sense miss both of these points. They miss the point that you know, imperialism is predicated on the existence of strong and weak parties that exist, that the, the relations between strong and weak parties that exist in a pers persistent pattern. So, you know, that we clearly have that right now. China is a very strong country compared to, you know, balkanized Africa with its 54 countries. Uh, and, and strong patterns are being set up, which are very likely to be persistent. Uh, the patterns are being set up by a strong and a weak party or weak parties. Um, so I think if one accepts this definition of a kind of basic requirement for imperialism, we've satisfied the first one. So I say that the mechanics of imperialism are highly fluid and they change according to the needs and circumstances of the moment. Clearly, China is not in a position to uh, colonize uh, an African country in the old 19th century or 20th century European sense. Um, you know, no more than uh, is it acceptable to go about having genocides in countries or many other things, uh, slavery, uh, you know, the standards of the day. Uh, in global discourse and civilization don't allow for certain things. Um, and so uh, whether or not China were inclined in that direction, the, the way the world works today would not tolerate this kind of behavior. So if you're a rising power with global interests and you're acting out of the normal sort of basic impulses of, of, of great powerdom, uh, then you have to figure out other ways of proceeding. Um, and, and naturally, that's what China is doing. China, I don't think, ever posed Chinese leaders. Let's not think of China as, a, as, a, as an anthropomorphic entity. China's leaders, I'm pretty sure, never sat down and had a meeting and said, well, how should we colonize Africa? And somebody raised their hand and said, well, you can't colonize Africa because you can't, the colonies don't exist in the world. Nobody would tolerate that in the world today. And I don't think that you, you have that kind of, that kind of conversation is not necessary. Um, you skip that step. Uh, China's leaders begin from another place. They begin from a place of how do we advance our interests in Africa? And I think in the mid-1990s, the Chinese noticed very clearly a kind of Western distraction from Africa uh, in the uh, sort of wake of the end of the Cold War that consisted in the case of the Europeans mostly to an eastward gaze of trying to incorporate Eastern Europe into the sphere of Western European capitalism because Eastern Europe was very closely related culturally to Western Europe, obviously, you know, tied together by all sorts of things, belief systems, writing systems, religion, philosophy, law, uh, et cetera, et cetera, history. Uh, and the United States got um, uh, increasingly diverted in uh, the greater Middle East, which starts in the real Middle East, and I would call, say extends all the way to Afghanistan through a series of wars and adventures and disasters. The Chinese said to themselves a number of things. You know, we clearly need to expand our influence in the world. We clearly need uh, to find new markets for ourselves as a rising power. We clearly need to secure natural resources because we are a manufacturing superpower 
or we, we wish to be a manufacturing superpower. Where can we do these things? We can do these things in Africa, it was concluded, because the, Africa is underinvested politically speaking and economically speaking by the West right now. They have, been, they have turned their attentions away from Africa and they have never really, uh, you know, in recent times shown much ambition whatsoever there at all. So this is a place where we Chinese can make great inroads and we can do this in a number of ways that redound really well for us uh, economically in terms of uh, um, sectorial interests in the economy, most notably with construction. We can do it with, uh, uh, you know, it, it can be a great outlet for Chinese capital and finance. And finally, it can be an outlet for Chinese people. And I don't want to get carried away here. I don't mean to say that the Chinese state decided. I know that people will jump up and say, you know, oh, he's saying that the Chinese state, I am not saying that the Chinese state had some central uh, committee meeting decision to say, let's send a million Chinese people to Africa. That's Anyone who reads my book knows that that's not my argument. Nonetheless, the Chinese state created the conditions whereby Chinese people did, in fact, begin to migrate to Africa. And this, the mechanisms are well known and are described in my book. The state companies, typically in construction, begin to do uh, project work. Uh, they send large numbers of people overseas for, uh, for contracted periods of time, a year or two years or what have you. Um, and uh, a certain number of people uh, from each of these contingents uh, decides to stay on because they figure that there's business in Africa to be done and that there's opportunities that are more abundant in this new African environment for them than they found back home in Sichuan or Henan or Hubei or what, wherever. And so this is how we end up with this large-scale migration that becomes the focus of my book. Um, one final thing on the imperial question, um, and, and that is, so if the mechanisms of imperialism change with time, uh, uh, and I, I, I don't want to bog you down in your podcast, but, you know, a lengthy description of, of how... Bog away. No, no. And so imperialism, you know, you can d debate when we should dis begin a discussion of imperialism. For my purposes in my book, I begin, I believe, around the 15th century and come up to the present. Um, and the variety of imperial experiences over this time span has been incredible from trade counters in various West African places or elsewhere in the sort of um, uh, Dutch East Indies or, or the West Indies for that matter, to um, zones of influence, to concessions, quote unquote, in China uh, in, in the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, to uh, frank uh, colonies such as existed throughout most of Africa in the first half of the 20th century. And these are just a few of the varieties of imperial experience. Well, so in 1960 or 1957, Kwame Nkrumah becomes the first president of, of an independent sub-Saharan African country, uh, of a country liberated from colonial rule in sub-Saharan Africa. And Kwame Nkrumah becomes famous, among other things, for elaborating a theory of neo-imperialism. And... Uh, I think Nkrumah, uh, who I don't get into very much in my book, was, you know, showed a fair amount of foresight in this regard. And I think one, I think if Nkrumah were around today, uh, he might applaud certain aspects of the Chinese project in Africa, but I think he would also be uh, rather critical and certainly skeptical of other aspects of the Chinese present or project in Africa. And one of them, uh, which I think fits a imperialist 
um, description rather well, which I'm going to explain to you, uh, I think would particularly attract Nkrumah's attention. And that is a kind of um, feedback loop that Chinese state capitalism has set up in Africa uh, that is uh, quite extraordinary um, and uh, goes, sort of reflects the, my initial description of what imperialism is, that you know, uh, a pattern of prolonged unequal relations between the strong and the weak in which the weak have few or no alternatives. The Chinese come, they say, beginning in the, late in the 1990s and accelerating into the next decade, you know, you guys don't have much going on here. The West isn't really paying attention to you. You've got all these construction needs. How would you like us to build a bridge for you or a dam for you or a, a highway for you or an airport for you? And, and, you know, the Africans very often, undemocratic African states that have, you know, been uh, kind of left at the very edge of the global economy are, you know, rubbing their hands together with glee, saying, oh, we would really love to do that. What do we have to do? And so what they end up doing is signing a deal, which, you know, we all know this, signing a deal that's based directly or indirectly on commodity production and export to China. China then sends... Uh, uh, pre-selected a list of pre-selected state companies for them to choose from to do this work. China then sends uh, the de designs for the work, uh, whether you know it's architectural designs or engineering designs of some other kind, with very little or in many cases no technical transfer to the African side. China then sends the workers uh, to do the work, and that means all the way from the you know upper management down to and I have seen and described bricklayers and um, people pushing wheelbarrows in my book came from China to do that kind of work. Um, and China sends the financing, of course. Uh, you know, the Chinese um, uh, policy banks provide the capital, uh, finance capital on commercial terms for these kinds of projects. Well, in, in each of these instances, each of the things that I have named, whether it is the design, uh, the engineering, the labor, or the financing, the flows all go directly back to China. This is, in my view, an unequal relationship uh, and one that Africans have signed on to, particularly in the first wave that I described, because they felt they had no choice and they didn't know any better and there were no, no, not no choice in the sense that their arms were twisted, no choice in the sense that they didn't see any ready alternatives. So. In a nutshell, that's my description of an imperial pattern of relationship that has begun to establish itself here and there across the continent. Dear listeners, so sorry to interrupt, but today's episode went over time and we had to cut it into two. That is actually a good problem to have, but that means that part two will be uploaded at a later date and we're cutting the podcast at this point. Thank you so very much for your time. Take care.